this morning during our Sunday school hour, I want to talk to us about how do we get involved? I mean, what, what do we do? What kind of practical steps do we take uh, to begin getting involved in finishing the task um, of the Great Commission? And so what we're going to do is we're going to unpack uh, a few different ways that we can be involved in going and sending. Um, when you talk about missions, to, to really boil it down, you're really involved in one of two things um, at a bottom shelf level, and you're either going or you're sending. And so we're going to unpack some different ways that we can be involved in going and some different ways that we can be involved in sending. And so one of the ways that we can be involved in sending is actually through the work of prayer. Now, don't dismiss this um, as a small thing. There are a lot of things that we can learn from prayer and participating in prayer. There are whole books written on prayer. Um, And all of us as Christians, I'm sure, need to be praying more, myself included. Uh, But when it comes to praying for the world, right? I mean, if you were to, to crawl into Sean Cooper's mind and you were to look at most of my prayers, you would probably find that the vast majority of my prayers are for who? Me, for Sean, right? Um, And so praying for the nations and praying for the world, I would say, is not something that comes naturally for any of us, because we're sinful and we're selfish. And so even as we begin to pray, we find ourselves struggling with, man, most of my prayers are centered around me and the primary immediate needs that find themselves in front of me. So myself, my family, maybe my, you know, my local church body, but man, over there, that's out of sight, that's out of mind. However, Jesus gives us some working capital out of the scripture when it comes to praying for the nations. And I think it was so incredible that your pastor modeled for you exactly what I'm going to share with you when we talk about praying for the nations. I don't know if that was planned. I don't think it was planned. Um, But if you were to read through the Gospels, okay, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you were to comb through the Gospels and you were to ask the question, Man, as I read through the Gospels, do I find anywhere in the Gospels in Jesus' life and ministry where he makes any prayer requests? Have you ever wondered, man, what would it be like if I were in a small group with Jesus and it was Jesus' turn to share his prayer requests with the group? Right? So here you are. I mean, try to put yourself for, uh, just imagine the situation where you're, You're in a small group with Jesus, and everybody is taking their turns, going around the circle saying, man, here are my prayer requests. Pray for my family, pray for this health need, pray for this financial need, pray for the job, pray for, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then lo and behold, it comes around, and it's Jesus' turn to share his prayer request. What on earth do you think he might say? Now, we can speculate that he would say a lot of things, but what has he given us from the Scripture? As a prayer request. Here it is. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them because they were like, they were harassed, excuse me, and helpless, and they were like sheep without a shepherd. Here it comes, and this is what Eric prayed. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are what? Few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest field. If you read through all four Gospels, this is the only known prayer request that I'm aware of that Jesus makes. Now, if you, can, if you read through the Gospels and you find something differently, man, come and tell me. But as I read through the Gospels, this right here is the only known prayer request that Jesus makes, which tells us a lot. Jesus says, hey, if you want to know how to pray for the world, 
It's as though Jesus looks out and says, man, there is this world out there, this huge harvest. And the starting point for that problem of this world, the harvest, is that you do what? You pray. And what do you pray? Pray that God would send workers into the harvest field. He is the Lord of the harvest. It's his harvest. Ask him to send workers into the harvest field. It's not, right, it's not pull up your bootstraps and try harder. It's ask me. I'm the one who's doing the sending, but you get to participate in joining with me in sending people out by asking me to send workers into the harvest field. But like I said earlier, when it comes to praying for the world, oftentimes we don't know what to say or what to pray. So it becomes an issue of, man, not only do I struggle with, man, it's out of sight, out of mind, and man, not only do I struggle with the fact that, man, my prayers are often centered around myself and the immediate needs around me, which is understandable. So how on earth would I begin to pray for the world? How on earth would I begin to pray for the nations? And so what we often tell people um, is, man, begin to pray in an educated way. And there are resources out there that can help us as Christians to begin to pray for the nations as we participate in finishing the task of world evangelization. Let me just give you a list of some very, very practical resources. Now, this might be familiar to some of you. However, if it's not, you should jot this down. One great resource for you to begin to pray for the nations is joshuaproject.net. Now, the beautiful thing is this whole organization has designed an app for you to put on your phone so that you can literally pray for the nations from the palm of your hand. I don't know if you guys realize this, but that is something that has not been a reality for more than about five years. To be able to pray for the nations right from the palm of your hand. And the beautiful thing is, every day, they will give you a new ethnic group that you can pray for. They'll tell you ways that you can pray. They'll tell you whether or not the scripture is in their language. They'll tell you whether the church is existing or whether they're under persecution, what religious beliefs they have. And so one great tool is joshuaproject.net. Another great resource is Operation World. Um, Operation World is this great big thick book, and Billy Graham said that every Bible study needs a Bible. That's a novel idea, right? (laughs) And a copy of Operation World. Now, the difference between Operation World and JoshuaProject.net is Operation World teaches you how to pray for nation states. So like China, Laos, Vietnam, Afghanistan. Joshua Project gets even more narrow and begins to tell you how you can pray for specific ethnic groups. And then another great resource you'll notice is Every Home for Christ. Now, I wasn't planning on this happening whenever I came here, um, but there's a resource table outside here, and lo and behold, on that resource table are these incredible maps of the world published by an organization called Every Home for Christ. Now, I'm not going to unravel this thing, because any of you know when you unravel a map, you can never get it raveled back up. You know what I'm talking about? So I'm not going to unravel this. But this is a great resource. Are these for free? Do we know? Okay, I'm getting some yeses, maybes. You can take these maps right here that are out on this resource table straight out these doors. And the beautiful thing about this map is it will coach you and walk you through how to pray for the world over the course of an entire month. This would be something great to bring out during your community group time as you guys spend time praying as a community group. This would be a great resource to bring out around the dinner table as you're getting ready to sit down with your family and not only just pray for your meal, but pray for the world. So this is a great, great resource where you can begin to take a step in the direction of, man, how do we get involved in finishing the task of world evangelization? Well, we can start with prayer. Now, 
Here's the danger about praying for the nations. Here's the danger in praying for the world. Uh, the traveling team, the organization that I work for, <clears throat> we have an old traveling team coworker who was challenged to start praying for the world whenever he came on staff with the traveling team. And so he took a copy of Operation World and began praying for Afghanistan. So Afghanistan is the very first country in Operation World. All the countries are in alphabetical order. And Joe Gober began praying for Afghanistan. And Joe kept praying for Afghanistan. And Joe couldn't stop praying for Afghanistan. And lo and behold, Joe decided to do what? Go to Afghanistan. So some of you just need to be aware of the fact that if you begin to start praying Matthew 9, 37 through 38, Jesus, I'm asking you to send workers into the harvest field. Like some of you need to be aware of the fact that you might become the answer to your own prayer. Okay? Some of you are thinking, great, then I don't want to pray for the nations. Um, I understand. But that might become a reality where you actually become the answer to your prayer that God sort of comes along and taps you on the shoulder and says, hey, why don't you, why don't you be the one that goes to Afghanistan? And that's exactly what happened. Joe ended up going to Afghanistan. Um, He met his wife in Afghanistan. They labored in Afghanistan. And now they've come back home and they're actually serving with the mission organization, helping recruit other people to go back to Afghanistan. So... One of the ways that we can be involved in finishing the task of world evangelization is through praying for the nations. So I've given you a list of great resources, Joshua Project, Operation World, and Every Home for Christ. Another great resource, get ready for this, you guys. Another great resource for praying for the world is your Bible, okay? Just praying through God's Word. Just praying through Scripture. What do you pray? Pray exactly what Eric prayed. Matthew 9, 37 through 38. Another creative way to pray for the world um, is when you get dressed in the morning, which I noticed all of us did, okay? Check the tag on the back of your clothes and see where your clothes are made. They're not all made in China. Surprise, surprise. And just pray for the country where your clothes are made. That's a very practical way to begin to start engaging in God's global purposes right in your bedroom. You with me? Don't make it complicated. Keep it simple. God hears your prayers and just pray Matthew 9, 37 through 38 for the country where your clothes are made. That would be a great way for you to begin taking steps of involvement in finishing the task remaining. Now, beyond praying, there are other ways that we can be involved in sending. Other ways that we can be involved in sending, ones that we think of, or the one I should say that we think of most often is through giving financially, giving financially. In Romans chapter 10, 13 through 15, the Apostle Paul says this, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in, and how can they believe in the one in whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can they preach unless they are what? Sent. So when Paul surveys, right, when Paul surveys this whole missions endeavor, this this task, remaining of taking the gospel to the ends of the earth, really, in essence, Paul sees this entire missions endeavor, sort of the race gets out of the blocks with who? Those who sinned. In fact, his, his logical argument is kind of somewhat like, he kind of, he kind of works backwards. He says this, man, they don't call unless they believe. They don't believe unless they hear. They don't hear unless someone preaches. And well, guess what? A preacher doesn't get there unless someone what? Sends them. Okay? In order for people to go, there are others who have 
to be involved in sending. And when you talk about missions, it is inevitable, it is inevitable that people will feel this sense in which, well, if I'm not the one going, I'm a second-class Christian. However, in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 24, listen to what David says to the army of Israel. The share of the man who stayed with the supplies is to be the same as that of him who went down to the battle. All what? Will share alike. When David and his army were about to engage in battle, there were those who were going to have to go to the front line of the battle to fight. However, there was going to be a portion of David's army that was going to have to stay behind with the plunder that they had conquered and were carrying around from other battles that they'd been involved in. And David wants to make it very, very clear to the Israelite army that those who go to the front line and those who stay behind with the share, they're all what? They're all alike because they're all in the fight together. And so as you guys begin to think through, man, what part is God leading me into? What step of obedience is God asking me to take with regards to the part he wants me personally, my family, and us corporately as a body to play in his task remaining or this mission that he's given us to take the gospel of all nations? I just want to encourage you guys that those who stay behind are not second-class Christians. You play a critical role and what God is doing globally by sending financially, by getting involved, just like Jeremy advocated for you guys and exhorted you guys to do, getting involved in a missionary care team. That is so, so critical. <clears throat> Man, most missionaries, they do all this support raising on the front end. They get overseas. And then just like when it comes to prayer, man, they're out of sight, out of mind. And I can promise you that they would love to hear from you guys. They would love to get an email from you. And so part of sending is certainly financial, but it involves much, much more than that. It involves encouraging them through emails. It involves sending them care packages. I remember um, I had some good, good friends from college who ended up going overseas to India long term. And they had been there for probably three or four years. And I remember emailing Will, and I said, Will, you know, you've been in India now for probably two, three years, four years, whatever it was. I can't remember. He'd been there for quite a while. And I said, man, Will, my wife and I would love to put together a care package, um, and we would love to send it to you. You know, so not only are we supporting you guys through prayer, but we'd like to get real practical and send you a care package. And I said, "Um, you know, what would you like for me to send you in India? And Will said, I would love for you to send me like 10 pounds of beef jerky, please. Now, for those of you who aren't quite sure why Will would request that I send him 10 pounds of beef jerky, well, in India, because they're Hindu, they typically don't eat what? They don't eat meat and they don't eat beef, right? Because the cow is considered to be a sacred animal. And so Will had said, man, it would minister deeply to me. Seriously, if you would just send me like 10 pounds of beef jerky. And I said, is there anything else that you'd like? And he said, yeah, send me another 10 pounds of peanut butter because you can't find it anywhere over here. And so I ended up actually spending more money in shipping, right, than I did in the food that, that Will requested that I send him. And so, man, getting involved in a missionary care team and sending, not just financially, but through some of these other avenues as well, are just 
as important. They're just as critical. All share alike. David wanted to make that expressly clear. And that's what I want to say to you guys this morning. It takes both, right? One has to hold the rope and one has to go down in the hole. You can't get off either way. Both are required to be involved. However, however, whenever it comes to sending, when it comes to giving, Here's what often happens. Now, I know this from my, not only my own prayer life, but my own like stewardship, right? I need God's grace to be able to steward the funds that he gives me. I'm as selfish as you guys are. And if I get a $100 bill, who's the first person I'm going to spend it on? By the way, it's not a trick question. Myself, right? And so the problem is, is not only do I struggle with my own greed, my own sin, and I need the power of the Holy Spirit to tear my fingers off of these material blessings that God channels through me, so to speak. But when we finally end up dropping our money into the offering plate, here's what typically happens. For every dollar that goes into the offering plate, 96 cents stays typically within the American church. Three and a half cents ends up going to the reached world. And notice that less than a penny a half a cent ends up making it to the unreached world. Now again, for those of you who are just joining us this morning, man, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last night's talk so that you understand exactly what I mean whenever I say unreached. For those of you who were there last night, whenever I say unreached, what do I mean? They have what? No access to the gospel. Okay, so we're talking about a different category of people whenever I use the term unreached. So Once the Lord finally pries my fingers right off of the dollar and I drop it into the plate, the other struggle that we're dealing with with regards to finishing this task is how we distribute those funds. Now, do we have to pay for buildings? Do we have to pay for overhead costs? Absolutely. It's just part of it. You just can't escape those kinds of things. But it's important that we understand that this is often how the shakedown works. Now, what I've done is I've actually brought for you guys a half a penny. Now, for those of you who are in the back, I can see you squinting. Don't worry. It's probably not because you have bad eyes. It's because a half a penny is hard to what? See. Okay? I brought this to illustrate that, yes, once our money falls into the offering plate, And we talk about the unreached world and finishing the task of world missions. This right here is what actually ends up making it to those who have no access to the gospel. And so maybe a step for you in the right direction with regards to how do we get involved, again, personally as a family, is to evaluate where some of your giving goes. We can be generous to the wrong things. And I realize that's a, that's a controversial statement. Some of you are like, I've never thought about it quite that way. Yeah, it's entirely possible that we could be like generous towards the wrong things. And so thinking through, man, what portion of our giving is going to the local body that's feeding us and building us up in the admonition of the Lord? And what part of our spending is going to those people who are among the least reached in the world, those who are unreached in the world? And being a good sender... I would tell you that um, just from my understanding and my experience with being you guys, with you guys for about the last, what, 24, 48 hours, if you will, man, you guys are giving to a lot of people and a lot of things, which is encouraging, very encouraging. And I'm not just saying that because Eric is sitting down here in the front row. It's sincerely encouraging to see that you guys are engaged 
in giving. But I hope and expect that more laborers, if the Lord sees fit to answer Eric's prayer, and mine as well, that more laborers would be sent from this church. For those of you who stay behind and send, you need to be prepared to be asked by people in the body for support. And so if, 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 if you're the one raising support, right, you're going to have to work through your own struggles, your own fears as you begin to raise funds. But if you're on the receiving end of getting the phone call from those who are raising support, don't screen their calls, right? Like, don't hang up. Don't be like, oh, here, here's another missionary couple, right, <clears throat> from Cape who are raising funds, and I, they're going to ask us for money. Yes, they are. Okay, newsflash. They have to raise funds to get overseas. And so if you're on the receiving end of that call, be ready to get that phone call. Don't ignore it. And if you're not in a place financially as a family to be able to give, then just tell the missionary couple that. Is that fair? Like, just tell them, hey, based upon where our finances are, we're in a place where we can't give. However, at the same time, I would tell you on the receiving end of that phone call, be prepared to evaluate what things that you might be able to let go of. Um, I've spent about the last decade of my life working primarily with college students, and in the most recent years, there's been a shift to me spending my time working more with local churches, and we would tell college students all the time whenever we talked about sending and giving financially in order to support missionaries, we would tell college students all the time, hey, what if you considered skipping Starbucks for six months? And they would raise their hands, and they'd be like, hey, we'd rather go overseas, thanks. That's a joke. You're supposed to laugh at that, by the way. They're like, you're asking me to sacrifice Starbucks? That's like second to the power of the Holy Spirit, right? And we would say, yeah, how much money do you spend a month going to Starbucks at 2 or $3 a cup of coffee? What would it look like if you just tucked that money away and you went and bought Folgers? Some of you are like, that's like a cuss word, <clears throat> okay? Yeah, what if you just went and bought Folgers and you lived on Folgers for the next 12 months? And you set aside that money and you just dropped it into an envelope and you said, hey, man, we're going to give this to, to this missionary couple that approached us for support. There are all kinds of ways that you can begin to evaluate where you can give more sacrificially. And again, I'm preaching to myself as much as I am preaching to you. However, when we talk about sending, I'm not only talking about care packages. I'm not only talking about sending financially through our finances, but I want to take it one step further. This is me and my wife over on your right, and some coworkers of ours, Ty and Carrie Kamiati. There's a story in and of itself about the Kamiatis that I don't have time to tell you guys. Ty actually ended up passing away of cancer about a year and a half ago. It was totally unexpected. So I could share a story with you guys about our coworkers. Um, he was 25 years old. However, the story I want to share with you guys this morning is about the older couple in the middle. The older couple in the middle is the Beckett family. You guys may remember hearing about the Beckett family about 10 years ago when their daughter Cheryl made headline news. Cheryl was one of 10 missionary workers working in Afghanistan, and her and nine of her missionary co-workers were gunned down by the Taliban. And so Cheryl... Mr. And Mr. Mr. and Mrs. Beckett's daughter um, was actually martyred in Afghanistan uh, as a foreign missionary. 
And the Coopers and the Kimyatis happened to be at a mission conference being hosted by a guy named John Piper. Raise your hand if you've ever heard of him before. Okay, good. A few of us. And uh, Mr. Piper was hosting a missions conference, and the Becketts were there speaking, and they were sharing their story about losing their daughter in missionary service. And so after they shared their story, my wife and I and Ty and Carrie approached them, and we began to talk with them and tell them what we did. We said, hey, we're involved in missions mobilization. We help recruit uh, you know, college students and the church at large to be involved in finishing the task of taking the gospel to all nations. And we quickly found out that we had all these mutual friends within the missions world. It's kind of a small world, if you will. And so as we began to talk with them longer and longer, we just said, hey, could we spend some time um, praying with you guys? Because the conversation very quickly turned uh, to tears, um, just because it was pretty emotional, uh, listening to them talk about what they'd gone through losing their daughter. And so as we prayed with them, um, we were all crying our eyes out, and we finished praying for them. And, um, and I said, Miss Beckett, I said, I spent about the last nine years of my life traveling the entire continental U.S. The only place I haven't been is Alaska. And so um, I, I do a lot of speaking. Um, and it's not because there's anything special about me. It's just because God's grace um, and his mercy, it, it, it blows my mind that he would use somebody like me, to be honest with you. And I said, however, I spent a lot of time in front of a lot of Christians across the country. And I said, I, I, would, I would love to know, Miss Beckett, if you had a chance to stand in my shoes as a parent who lost their daughter in the cause of Christ, and you could say whatever you wanted to a group of Christians, what would you tell them based upon your personal experience? And I will never forget what Miss Beckett said to me. She said, Sean, it is not enough to stand in church and sing about it. I said, excuse me? And she said, it is not enough to stand in church and sing about it. I said, what do you mean? She said, you know, how we stand in church and raise our hands and sing things like, I surrender all. All to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. We stand in church and sing about those things. But if we're going to finish the task remaining, it's not enough to stand in church and sing about it. We have to be willing to send our own kids. I said, what? She said, we have to be willing to send our own kids. It's not enough just to send our funds. Are we willing to send our family? Are we willing to send our own children to the ends of the earth? And why do I mention that? <clears throat> I mention that because oftentimes we think, man, it's enough just to send our dime. And to consider the fact that, man, if we're going to talk about finishing the task remaining, man, we need to think about, are we prepared to send our own children? Are we prepared to send our own grandchildren? That's what it's going to take if we're going to finish the task remaining is being prepared not just to send our money, but to send our people as well. A lot of churches will say, man, we're sending lots of finances. I remember I was speaking at a church in Austin, Texas, and a missions pastor looked me in the face and said, you know, Sean, I think that our spiritual gift is sending money. And I just thought to myself, I didn't say this to him, but I just thought to myself, man, how would that fly with Miss Beckett? Like, man, we feel like it's our spiritual gift as a church just to send our funds. And I said, how many people from your church are you sending, right? Not, not, not are we measuring our church by our seating capacity, but are we measuring our churches by our sending capacity? How many people from your own church, your own bodies, your own members are you sending? 
And so we need to think about when we talk about sending man, not just sending, right, our funds, not just sending um, care packages, but man, are we prepared to send our own family members and those from our own body? And so ways we can begin to get involved is one, praying. Ways we can begin to get involved is through sending. Other ways that we can begin to get involved is by going across the street and welcoming the nations that are right here in our backyard. Now, reaching the nations that are in our backyard is not going to finish the task of world evangelization, but it is a step in the right direction. It's honestly, sometimes whenever I think about the fact that God's bringing all of these different nations to our backyard. By the way, you guys are aware of the fact that God's bringing the nations to our backyard, right? Anybody who's watching the news is aware of that. (laughs) You have to be aware of that. Yeah, the nations are coming to our backyard, and I often wrestle with, man, is the reason that God is sending the nations to our backyard because we're unwilling to go to them. They're coming here. The nations are coming to our backyard, and the question that we've got to ask ourselves is, what are we as Christians? Right? Long before we're Republicans, long before we're Democrats, I don't care where you stand politically, it makes no difference to me. You are a Christian before you're either one of those things if you're born again and you're putting your faith and trust in who Christ is and what Christ did at the cross. The question for us as Christians is, man, what do we do with the nations that are coming here? I understand from a nationalistic perspective, the government has to play a role in all of that stuff. That is a talk in and of itself. But what do we do about the ones who are coming here? Now, Jesus models for us in the New Testament exactly how we're to behave towards those who are from other nations. Jesus steps onto the scene about the age 30. He begins his public ministry. And as Jesus begins his public ministry, Jesus was Jewish, for those of you who didn't know, by the way, right? And Jesus was not anti-Jewish. Jesus went to his own and his own received him not And so he begins to engage with Gentiles, people of other ethnicities, those who were non-Jewish, if you will. Now this right here is eight examples. By my count, if you read through the Gospels, there's close to two dozen. So this is just a slice of the pie. Where do we see Jesus engaging the nations that were in his backyard right there in first century Palestine? Well, how about the example of the Samaritan woman at the well? How about the healing of the Canaanite? daughter, the Canaanite woman's daughter. How about uh, the feeding of the 4,000 Gentiles? How about the centurion servant that was healed? All who were sick in Gennesaret, the demon-possessed man in the Gadarenes, the healing of the blind and the lame in the court of the Gentiles. I mean, we could just go on and on and on all through the Gospels observing Jesus's engagement with those who were non-Jewish, those who were other ethnicities from him, if you will. He modeled for us exactly what it looked like. He gave us a clear picture that he went not only to his own, but he was engaged in reaching other nations as well. Now, I'm going to talk more about this in the second service, so I'm not going to say much more than this. I'm just going to sort of let it land that Jesus models for us what it looks like to engage in the nations. And I want to remind us again, just statistically speaking, that 850,000 international students and scholars are studying in the United States from nearly 188 countries around the world. Thousands of international students. That doesn't even include refugees, which I'll address in the second service. Okay, we're just talking international students that are coming here through the appropriate chain of command 
sitting in our classrooms, on our campuses, on our universities. Even more striking is the fact that 40 of the world's top leaders and presidents studied at universities in America. Which means that there could literally be a world leader right here at SEMO. I don't know if you've ever thought about the potential influence that you might have that God would give you in and through building a relationship with somebody from another country, another nation, welcoming them into your home. Statistics say that 80 to 90 percent of international students never even step foot into an American's house. Okay, they don't even cross the threshold and come in the front door, let alone even hear the gospel, who Christ is and what Christ has done. They, they don't even come in the front door. I remember my wife and I, <clears throat> we were speaking at um, Eastern Washington University. It was several years ago, up in Washington State, in a little town called Cheney. Not much to write home about if you've ever been to Cheney, if you're ever thinking about going to Cheney. Um, but Eastern Washington University is there, and I remember we were going there to speak. And after we got done speaking to a group of students, the following morning I was meeting uh, with some young men on campus who were eager to take next steps and how they could get involved in God's global purposes. They were asking the question, man, how do I get involved in participating with God and finishing the task remaining of making disciples of all nations? And so we'd spend about an hour together talking, and me talking through some of these things that I'm sharing with you guys this morning about next steps that they could take, ways they could get involved, ways they could pray, creative ways they could give. And I had to get up and take a bathroom break from our appointment. And I remember getting up from the table at the union at Eastern Washington University, walking down the hallway there in their union. And I got down to the end of the hallway, and there must have been 10 or 15 young Arab men that were crowded around the bathroom door. And I sort of nudged my way into the bathroom, and I came into the bathroom, <clears throat> and there was probably about a half a dozen more there in the bathroom. They had their sleeves rolled up, they had their pant legs rolled up, some of them had their feet in the sink. They were washing their feet in the sink. They had their shoes off. Their shoes were all over the floor. They're in the men's bathroom. Now, because I know a little bit about Islam, I knew that they were in the middle of a sacred washing ceremony. They were cleaning themselves because they were getting prepared to go worship Allah. It was Friday, which is their day of worship. So I had an idea of what was going on. And I remember saying to this young man that was next to me, I said, hey, I know that you're in the middle of something very important and spiritual but I just wanted to ask you real quick, man, tell me your name and tell me where you're from. And he said, my name is Khalid. He said, I'm from Kuwait. And I said, Khalid, I just want you to know that I'm glad you're in America. Now that statement in and of itself is difficult for some of you in this room to swallow. Some of you aren't sure how you feel about Muslims being in our country. Again, I'm not going to say much more with that because I'm going to leave that for, for, for the second hour whenever I preach to God's word specifically. But I said, Khalid, I'm glad that you're here. Now, why would I tell Khalid that I'm glad he's here? Because I know that he has got a greater chance of hearing the gospel as a college student in America than he probably ever will in Kuwait. And that is exciting. And so I walked out the bathroom door, headed down the hallway, and Khalid comes bolting around the corner. Hey, 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 turns around. I said, what's up? He said, man, thank you so much for saying that. I said, well, I meant it. I wasn't flattering you. I'm glad you're here. He said, no one has ever said that to me. I said, really? He said, yeah. I said, Khalid, how long have you been in America? He said, I've been in your country for one year. I said, Khalid, how many American homes have you been in since you've been here? He'd been in one. 
I said, you've been to one American's home since you've been to the United States. An entire year you've been here. Can you imagine going to another country for a year and never being welcomed into someone else's home? I said, Cleed, you've only been welcomed into one American home. Yeah. I said, why do you think that is? And he looked me dead in the face and he said, because all your people think I'm a terrorist. All your people think I'm a terrorist. They're coming right here to our backyard. And we've got an opportunity to stick out our hand and begin engaging with God in the task remaining of reaching all nations by starting with going across the street and welcoming the nations that are right here in our backyard. We can be involved through praying. We can be involved through sending. We can be involved in going through reaching the nations that are here. And lastly, we can be involved in going by going overseas. As I said earlier, we can begin by reaching the nations in our backyard, but we can never expect to finish the task remaining by stopping there. Someone is going to have to go. And what I'm going to do in the second service this morning is I'm going to give you from Genesis all the way to Revelation a biblical case for God's heart for the nations. I want you to recognize that this is not just something that we find in the Great Commission. This starts in page one and ends in the maps. However, you've already seen, you already know that Jesus has given us a clear mandate to make disciples of all nations. And as I shared last night again, the vast majority of the unreached peoples of the world reside inside this box right here called the 1040 window. It gets its name from the two latitudes that make it up, the 10th and the 40 degree north latitude. Stretches from West Africa all the way over to East Asia. Roughly 2.4 to 2.6 billion unreached people live inside this box that are almost entirely cut off from access to the gospel. Finances we've already talked about are almost the same. So we're not only talking about a deficiency in manpower, but we're talking about a deficiency in money and finances that are being sent there. Now, let me ask you guys a question. When we look at this box right here, let's talk about why is it that people don't go to that box? And seeing that this is a joint Sunday school, and most Sunday school classes are a participatory thing, um, let me hear from you guys for just a couple minutes before we shut this down. Why is it that most people don't end up going to that box right there? And I'm not going to condemn anybody. I'm not going to throw anybody under the bus. I just want to hear from you guys on why is it that you think, yeah, yeah, okay, so the gentleman right down here in the front row, for those of you in the back who couldn't hear, said comfort. Yep, that's a real issue. I like comfort. Does anybody else like comfort? Okay, all the rest of you are liars who didn't raise your hand. <laughs> no, 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 I don't like comfort. Uh, okay, comfort, yeah, so that would be a huge struggle for people going there. That's not a comfortable place to go in most situations. Eric? Fear. Fear of what? <laughs> I said, fear of what? And for those of you who couldn't hear, Eric said, yes. <laughs> yes. Fear is a real thing. I bet if you surveyed the missionaries that you guys are sending out from this church, they would look you in the face and tell you they were what? Afraid. And I would bet they would tell you that there are some days that they're still afraid. What's the most repeated commandment in the entire Bible? Do not fear. Now, why would God say that? Because he's mindful that we are dust, fragile, weak. <laughs> that our faith is wavering as he constantly exhorts the disciples. O ye of little faith. Believe me, I promised you that not only am I commanding you to go, but that I'll be what? With you. If he's not, he's a liar. He's not God. We can't trust him. He's not worthy of our obedience, love, all of it. 
He promises he'll be with them. Yeah, fear is a very real thing. Fear of what? Yes? <laughs> well, let's unpack that a little bit. Real quick. What things are we afraid of? Persecution. Yeah, one of my coworkers says all the time, you don't have to lose your life by becoming a missionary. That's what we think, don't we? You don't have to lose your life by becoming a missionary. You lost your life when you said yes to Jesus. That's what the gospel says about you and I. We no longer belong to ourselves when we hand our life over to Christ. We don't have to lose our lives by becoming a missionary. We're already dead men walking. And what kind of impact would it have on those of us who are going if we would embrace the reality of that? That I'm already dead. Yeah, but fear is a real thing. Fear of persecution. What other kinds of fears? What other kinds of obstacles? Just give me something. Support raising. Well, we've already talked about that. I don't want to have to raise support. I might come across as begging. I typically point people to Luke chapter 8, where Jesus lives on support. And I say to them, if Jesus Christ himself chose to live on support, what's your excuse? There's not one. It's not easy at times. I'll admit that. However, to testify to God's faithfulness when you live on support is so good. To be able to tell of God's faithfulness and his provision to us when we live on support is a, is a remarkable thing. Other reasons why people don't go? Loneliness, yeah. You're going to be very lonely when you go there. To tell you otherwise would be misleading you. How about this one? I'm not called. Okay, what would a call even look like if you got one? I don't know. Would the, would the heavens part, right? Would the light shine down on you? Would you have like a liver quiver? No, maybe that's just last night's bad bean burrito, right? I mean, people tell me, if I had a $100 bill for every time someone told me that they weren't called to go overseas, I would never have to raise support again. I'm not called to go. Okay, well, what would a call look like? Tell me. How would you know you had a call? What if you started with a command? Go and make disciples of all nations. Just this last week, I'll tell you a quick story. Just this last week, Meredith and I are part of a community group at our local church. And a young girl came up to me who is a special ed teacher. Her name is Kirsten Venata. It's actually German. You wouldn't think that. But Kirsten Venata came up to me after community group and said, Sean, I know that you were involved in helping missionaries get overseas and helping recruit Christians to get involved in global missions. And I would like to spend two years overseas and leave this coming August. Can you put me in touch with an agency? Can you help me raise support? And I was just slobbering. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Kirsten. I would love to help you. I mean, uh, how soon can we get started, you know? And, and so as I'm talking to Kirsten right there in Meredith and I's living room, this last week, Thursday night, like three days ago, I said, Kirsten, I'm just curious. You want to go spend two years overseas? You've been teaching as a special ed teacher now for like four years out of college. I said, tell me about your call to go overseas. Do you have any special place that you want to go? She said, no. Send me to the hardest parts of the world, I guess, if you've got something available like that. I said, tell me more about your call. Like, how did it happen? And she said, I didn't have a call. It was a natural choice. I said, hang on just a second. Can I write that down? It was a natural choice. Yeah, I just looked at the fact that there were needs overseas, and as a special ed teacher, I could probably help meet those needs. So I thought, why not? It was a natural choice, just like someone would make a natural choice to a job offer or a promotion 
or anything. It was a natural choice. I mean, people say, well, I'm not called to go to the 1040 window. And I always press back. How would you know if you had a call? How would you even know if one came? There are all kinds of reasons that we can come up with, man, about why we don't go. This couple in the middle, Dave and Gloria Vreeland, are friends of mine. Dave runs a missions class in Wilmington, North Carolina, called Perspectives on the World Christian Movement. For those of you guys who don't know, there's a perspectives class that's hosted biannually in Cape Girardeau. If you're interested in perspectives, raise your hand, Mark. <clears throat> talk, go ahead, don't be embarrassed. If you're interested in perspectives, you need to talk to this guy right here, okay? David runs a class, a perspectives class, in Wilmington, North Carolina. Tuesday of this week, David called me. He said, Sean, I can't have you come back and teach perspectives in Wilmington, North Carolina this year. And I said, why? And he said, because my wife and I, Gloria, we're leaving. I said, you're leaving? He said, yeah. He said, we're going overseas for the last quarter of our life. I said, excuse me? He said, yeah, the house is on the market. Now, let me tell you a little bit about David real quick. David is a nuclear engineer for General Electric. His wife, Gloria, is a family practice doctor who owns her own practice in Wilmington, North Carolina. They live in a 5,000-square-foot home. <clears throat> they have three kids. Their daughter, Marie, the one in the glasses over on your left, is serving in China with Campus Crusade, or crew. David's been leading a perspectives class for the last six years. And I said, Dave, why are you going overseas? He said, Sean, the last six years of my life have been the most miserable. I said, the most miserable? He said, yeah. Every single year whenever I lead this missions class called Perspectives, I cannot take it any longer. Now, why do I share David's story as we close? Here's why. Because David has been involved in giving financially. David has been involved in welcoming internationals into his home on a regular basis. David has been involved in praying for the nations. So it wasn't like David just said, you know what, I just pray. I don't go, that's for someone else, I just pray. David was realizing that, man, I don't have a good reason why not to go overseas. And I said, what is your greatest fear? And David said to me, my greatest fear, Sean, is that I would end up dying in Wilmington, North Carolina, living the American dream. Living safely, comfortably, and financially secure. And so I'm prepared to sell it all and go. So I would say to you guys, as a church body, most of my time is spent working with college students, but to the rest of us, man, God can use anybody at any age and stage in life. We can be involved in praying, sending, welcoming, and going.